Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. Today's November 10th. It's actually November 10th, and you're with a virtual City Club Forum. And today we're going to be joined by Tom Zenti, who has been CEO of University Hospitals for nearly two decades. He plans to retire in just a few months at the end of January. During Mr. Zenti's tenure, the health system has grown to become an integrated network of 18 hospitals, more than 50 health centers, and over 200 physician offices in 16 counties throughout Northern Ohio that care for more than 1 million patients annually. Reporting an annual revenue of more than $4 billion, University Hospitals, or UH as we all know it, is one of the largest employers in Northeast Ohio with some 28,000 caregivers. Since Mr. Zenti took the helm of UH in 2003, the healthcare industry has experienced dramatic change, including the introduction and, uh, and passage of the Affordable Care Act, challenges to that very same law, some of one of which is happening today, the shift from volume to value-based care, an increased national focus on patient experience, innovations in diagnosis and treatment of diseases, utilization of telehealth, and most recently, quickly pivoting to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. Today, we'll talk with Mr. Zenti to discuss the most significant changes over health in healthcare over the last 20 years and where he thinks the future of healthcare is. And then we'll turn, as we always do, to your questions. A quick word here, too, to mention that today's forum is the annual Richard W. and Patricia R. Pogue Endowed Forum. You know, Tom Zenti really is a community leader who follows a model perfected by Dick Pogue, a great friend to the City Club who has served on our board and also on the board of University Hospitals. And as most of you know, I'm sure Mr. Pogue's law career spanned six decades and under his leadership, Jones Day became the second largest law firm in the United States. In addition, Mr. Pogue has left an indelible mark on our community. Both Dick Pogue and Tom Zenti know firsthand the challenges and opportunities that come through leading through tremendous change. And we're so pleased to kind of bring this together in this way today. Lastly, a quick thank you to City Club's generous members, sponsors, and donors who support our virtual forums. You can find a full list when you visit cityclub.org slash thank you. You can also join them and become a member there as well. As I said, we're going to do questions from the audience in the second half. If you have a question for Tom Zenti, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can see it on the screen right now. And you can also tweet your question at the City Club and we will work them into the program. And now it's my pleasure to welcome to our virtual City Club stage, Tom Zenti, retiring CEO of University Hospitals. Hey there, Tom, how are you? I'm doing great, Dan, how are you? I'm great, it is wonderful to see you and congratulations <laughs> on just a, a great uh, a great career and, um, and 20 years of growth and leadership. Tom, we're sitting, uh, as we sit here today, there's sort of three huge things that are happening in the healthcare world that are probably dominating a lot of conversations um, uh, in your office as they are dominating the airwaves as well. Um, the coronavirus pandemic obviously is continues to be a huge concern, but we've seen cases spiking in, uh, in recent weeks. We're hitting record levels here in Ohio. There's a, a vaccine that has shown, announced some promising results. Pfizer, the, um, the maker of that vaccine, announced some very promising results yesterday. And meanwhile, the Affordable Care Act is facing one more challenge at the Supreme Court as we speak. Um, it's an incredible time to, to be working in healthcare. Well, it was never uncomplicated, but it's more complicated <laughs> now than it's ever been for legal reasons, for clinical reasons, for geopolitical reasons. Uh, you, you talk about 
what's happening across the world. It's something that none of us would have ever planned for. And you think about all the things that are happening now, the change in executive leadership and presidents, uh, President-elect Biden and uh, Vice President Harris. It, it's going to be an amazing time in the next 12 months. And the next three months, I think, are going to be very telling. As you and I spoke about, Dan, maybe we can talk about this later, but mm -hmm. I don't think this debate is over either, uh, or speculation is over until January the 5th, when the Senate runoff uh, occurs and uh, we find out whether or not we're going to have divided government or single party government. So there are still a lot of moving parts uh, in, in this piece of machinery, but nonetheless, you can never predict, but you can always prepare. And we're in the process of doing that right now. In terms of the future of healthcare, you mentioned divided government or single party government. Uh, in terms of the future of healthcare and actually getting something passed, which do you think would be better for your field? You know, it's really hard to say, Dan. I, I, I think the, the key point here is several things need to occur, I think, if we're going to have success. Number one, we need to own responsibility for our own health and well-being. And frankly, I think that there should be incentives put in place for people to do just that. Uh, we still have about 20% of the population who are tobacco users. That's one out of five people. We know the deleterious effects that that causes. But nonetheless, I, I think we need to take ownership for our own health. Estimates are as well that about 35 or 36% of the population is borderline uh, morbidly obese. And we all know what that causes. Uh, from a downstream effect standpoint. So I think having personal ownership for our own health is something that really needs to be taken into account. That's number one. Number two, I would hope that this entire country would have access to primary care in a way that many people don't experience it today. Um, access, in my opinion, should be coordinated through a primary care provider. That's either a family practitioner, internal medicine specialist, uh, advanced practice practitioner, physician's assistant, whatever the case may be, so that that person can actually serve as a, a navigator to better understand how we should be accessing the system in the most appropriate way. Thirdly, I think we need affordable health care. We're already into an age of consumerism, and I'm saying this without any hyperbole, but uh, our readmission rates here at UH have gone down rather significantly over the past many years. But we ask people, you know, you're, you're not taking your medications. And why is it that you didn't get your prescriptions filled? We know that because of our electronic medical record. And you know, people are coming back to us being readmitted to the hospital because they said to us, well, you know, we got home, we were discharged. And then the point is we had to decide whether or not we were going to pay our rent, whether we were going to buy food, or whether we're going to uh, have our prescriptions filled. That shouldn't happen in the United States today. So regardless of what the model is, if we take those three things into consideration, we're going to go a long way toward improving the overall health of our entire United States. Tom, we, uh, we mentioned at the outset that cases of the COVID-19 are surging in the state of Ohio as they are across much of the country right now. Um, how has UH prepared for this moment? Yeah, you know, Dan, I'll, I'll expand on that if, if you don't mind for a moment. First, I'd, I'd like to say that uh, I really enjoy living in Cleveland, Ohio. I love Northeast Ohio, and this has been my home for the longest time in my entire life. And uh, I'm going to be remaining here because I really enjoy the people, I enjoy the culture, and I enjoy everything that Northeast Ohio has to offer. I tell you that because one of the first phone calls that uh, I received was from Tom Mihalovic at Cleveland Clinic, the new CEO. 
And we had a very meaningful conversation and we have a, a great working relationship. And he said, you know, Tom, we need to make sure that we're gonna work together for the betterment of this community. And we compete where we must and we collaborate where we can. But we came to the conclusion that as two major organizations here in our community, we would work together for the betterment of the entire Northeast Ohio population at large. We then of course incorporated Metro and others. And the point is I couldn't be prouder of the way that all of us have come together as a group, not as a collection of individuals. This is far more of a Republic response as opposed to a Confederate response. And I think we've really worked very well together. That's point number one. Mm -hmm. Point number two, I'm saying this not just in terms of uh, casual, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could work together? We're not only agreeing to it, but we've done it since February of, la of this past year, mm -hmm. uh, February of 2020. And when I say we're working together, there are teams that have been assembled at each of the institutions who are talking two, three, four, five, six times a day, seven days a week to make sure that we're prepared. So I wanted to make that point because I know that many times if I'm out and about in Cleveland, people always say to me, you know, why don't you and the clinic get together uh, in a more appropriate way? Well, you know, we have a lot of requirements where we have to be sure that we're not going to be involved in anti-competitive behaviors and all the traditional legal things. But be that as it may, I'm very proud of being part of this medical community who's come together under this uh, entire response to COVID. So to your point, um, we run on average about 1,800 patients a day across our entire frame, inpatients across our entire frame. As you mentioned, we take care of about 1.3 million patients a year across our system. And we were able to scale up to 5,100 beds. We were able to do that back in March and April, and we're prepared to do that today. I know- uh, 5,100 beds collectively among the organizations. I was just gonna say, just for UH. Just for UH. Um, yes, and, and I believe that uh, Cleveland Clinic was able to scale up to about 70, 100 beds. I'm not sure what the metro numbers were, but the point is we are working together in such a way that we are able to scale up on short notice in the event we needed to spool up to be responsive. But we're not seeing the kind of volumes that we're seeing in other states. And so I think the efforts that we've uh, put underway as a state have actually been relatively successful, but there's no doubt that the numbers are going up. So we're prepared as UH, we're prepared as a community, and we already went through the exercise and we can repeat it again if we have to. You know, I've got a mask right here. You probably have one in your pocket or mm -hmm. something like that. And we have, I feel like as a, as a community, we've done pretty well at the masking and the social distance. And, and I wonder if part of that is because the, because our community, because our local, our regional economy is so focused on healthcare. And so many of us know, have friends and family who work in healthcare and that message was sort of easier for all of us to hear, you know, the message to, about what to do about washing hands and masking and keeping our distance. I wonder if that was just sort of easier for all of us to hear because we were already sort of familiar with the stakes. You know, it, it's a great observation, Dan. I, I don't know why uh, we're seeing the kinds of things that we're seeing here in terms of compliance, but be that as it may, uh, there are still a lot of businesses that are suffering as a result of this, but uh, we're very diligent here at UH, and I'm sure that all of our compatriots in, in healthcare are equally diligent. Uh, you know, I walked in today and entrances are all uh, being staffed by people who are taking temperatures and providing masks and so forth. But, you know, it was very frustrating for me. I, I was out for a breakfast this past weekend. The wear isn't important, but uh, mm -hmm. I went to join 
uh, a couple of friends for breakfast on Saturday morning, and I walked into this particular place, and there was a very large room there, and uh, there was a sign that said, uh, this is a private breakfast for a sporting team. And I went in and I sat down at our table, and you know we were socially distanced, properly protected, and so forth. And I could see into this large room. There must have been a hundred people in there. Seventy percent were children, probably the, between the ages of twelve and fifteen or sixteen. No one was wearing a mask. No mm. one was wearing a mask. And so, although we do see the opportunity for people to socially distance, wash their hands, and wear a mask, likewise, we're seeing people who are just ignoring the rules and regulations. So I, I, I wish I knew. Mm -hmm. uh, what the benefit was, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, again, we're seeing relatively large increases, but on a percentage basis, they're far smaller than the rest of the country in terms of our inpatients at UH. One of the great ironies of the pandemic was that at the time when we needed them most, hospitals were experiencing probably their lowest revenues, right? Um, because of the pandemic, that everything everything that generates revenue for a hospital, the elective surgeries and, and, and the office visits and so forth were put, put to, were put on hold so that the hospitals, all the hospitals, your hospitals, everybody's hospitals could be ready for a surge if it came and to prevent, and also they were put on hold to prevent the potential for spread. Um, it revealed some ways in which our healthcare system feels fundamentally flawed. Yeah, I think that's right. But remember, you know, we're entering into a new phase now. So you referenced that on Sunday, uh, we saw the results of some of the uh, vaccine activities that have been taking place. And mm -hmm. it appears that this one, uh, at least from early indications, uh, is about 90% effective, which is terrific. Mm -hmm. There are 26 others worldwide that are being developed. So, I mean, there is light at the end of the tunnel. So there's no doubt that we're going to be able to make progress. But still, Dan, it's going to be slow. And I hope that everybody on this call stays connected to the media, clearly understands what's coming out of uh, Dr. Fauci's office and so forth, because there is no easy solution. There are seven and a half billion people in the world. Uh, the number of doses that are going to be able to be created in this one particular um, organization, Pfizer, that's come forward with a, with, with a, a vaccine that seems to work. But still, the numbers are staggering. We have 340 million people, plus minus, in the United States. That particular vaccine is a double-dose vaccine, so you have to come back 21 days later. Just mm -hmm. the logistics of creating, making, delivering, and administering this, it's not going to happen overnight. So I would hope that, although we do see an opportunity for, uh, I would say, good news on the horizon, we still have a long way to go. So let's keep doing what we're doing. Let's stay socially distanced. Let's wear a mask. Let's wash our hands and let's be judicious about all the things that we need to do to prevent the continued spread. Tom, let's take a step back from the current events and, and look back over your two decades. Um, I know uh, you like to tell the story that when you first came, everybody was like, ah, he's probably like a three to five year guy. <laughs> and here you are two decades later. Um, and um, I know that you have really had, found a home here in Northeast Ohio. But what do you most, when you look back over those 20 years, are there particular moments or um, particular uh, initiatives that you engaged in about which you, you are, you're really proud that you're proud to see that as part of, as part of the legacy of your leadership? I'm not saying like your, your legacy because you, you lead a team, right? It's a, it's 20,000 people. 
um, but the the legacy of your leadership in this time and, and the work you've been able to, to inspire. Yeah. So, you know, there is no first person singular in, in any business and there is no first person singular um, in leadership in a, in a health system, especially. But I'll say a couple of things. So, yeah, the over under was three years. And when I first got here, I would have taken the under. Uh, I never <laughs> thought that, uh, you know, 20 years later, almost I would I would be here. I would say a couple of things. Number one, I grew up in a, a very small former coal mining town in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. And so, you know, I continually moved to better my career development. And I lived in Los Angeles for 10 years. And Los Angeles is a city that's built on image and imagination, which is terrific. Uh, nine degree temperature variation between January and July. Uh, just a fabulous place to live. And I worked for a world-class organization that I was very proud to be power, uh, part of. Um, but when I moved here, I realized that, you know, this was coming home for me. And the moment I got here, I just felt like I was back by some measures where I belonged. And Northeast Ohio is a region built on grit and determination. And I like that about this environment. And that's why I'm planning on staying here, certainly during the warmer weather. But I think I've earned the right to sort of disappear during the winter months. And uh, if you like, I can talk a little bit about what I'm going to be doing, be that as it may. Very welcoming community, wonderful place to be, and one of the best healthcare cities in the world. And that's what drew me here. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, I'll just share a very quick anecdote. So uh, my office in uh, Cedar sinai faced north. I overlooked the Santa Monica Mountains. I could see the Hollywood sign in the distance. Uh, overlooked the Blue Whale. It was a perfect place to be. It was on the corner of uh, West Hollywood, Los Angeles, and Beverly Hills. All was right with the world. And the phone rang, and it was a friend of mine in search. And um, he said, Tom, I've got a great opportunity. I think you'd be terrific for this. And so he went through 15 minutes of why this was a great opportunity. And at the end of which, and by the way, I knew where it was because only 5% of the hospitals in the United States were over 500 beds. And I knew exactly where this was. So I said, well, Dick, I said, where, where is this opportunity? And he said, well, Tom, he said, let me tell you more about the opportunity. And I said, Dick, I, I know this is University Hospitals of Cleveland. And then there was a pause. And he said, well, what do you think of that? And I said, I'm more interested than ever. Uh, you know, whether, and I've said this in multiple forums, whether it's in an academic endeavor or a sporting event or anything in which there was competition, healthy competition makes everybody better. And I thought moving to a city where healthcare is among the best in the world. There's no better place to be. So mm -hmm. uh, I've enjoyed every minute of being here. And so, you know, I take you all the way from the beginning to, you know, what drew me here and then all the way now to the end of why I'm going to be stepping down. And we began my transition about five years ago. We could talk mm -hmm. about that if you have an interest, but be that as it may, the people here are terrific. This organization is an amazing organization. And as I like to say here all the time, you can never predict, but you can prepare. And mm -hmm. so uh, we depended on four basic and four very simplistic themes. Number one, what are the demographics? Number two, where do we see healthcare going? Number three, what's our place in where healthcare is going? And number four, creating our strategic plan and uh, pursuing it with a tremendous amount of zeal. And so we planned for growth and outpatient. We planned in the creation of accountable care organizations. We have the fifth largest provider sponsored ACO in the country by some estimation. We planned for technology change. We planned for virtually everything. But, you know, we did it in such a way that they were in three to five year increments, but updated every six to 12 months. And so the good news is we don't find ourselves at the moment with having to go through a process of reorienting the health system or 
finding adaptive reuse for real estate. I mean, we will need to find some of that by some measure, but everything that we anticipated was going to happen, quite frankly, did happen. But mm -hmm. most importantly, we evaluated this on a 12-month basis uh, for the past 20 years. And I'm sure we'll continue to do that on, in the future as well. You know, you said that of the four, you mentioned four things, and one of them was where healthcare is going. Well, where do you think it's going now? I think we're going to see the, the same trends that we've seen already. Number one, um, COVID, quite frankly, has accelerated what we were thinking was going to be happening in any case in our world. So mm -hmm. first and foremost, the number of electronic visits, virtual visits, technologically enabled them visits, uh, you know, went up 900%. And so we expected this to happen, but it just accelerated what that meant. Secondly, um, the focus on home health. We've grown our home, our home health department rather substantially over the past many years. We take care of now almost 4,000 people a day in their homes. The largest number of people we care for and actually stay in their homes. So 3,500, 4,000 people a day. Things like remote monitoring, critically important. So we worked with a lot of companies, but one of which is a company by the name of Massimo, where we do um, evaluations of uh, oxygen saturation remotely through what appears to look like almost an eye watch with a, a, an attachment to someone's finger. So every five minutes, we're getting an update on their oxygen uptake and whether or not they're having significant problems. So, but lots of other examples. So virtual health is one of those key things. Remote monitoring is another. Um, as much as I don't mean this to sound negative, uh, a lot of people were fearful of going to uh, skilled nursing facilities because, as you know, in the early going, SNFs had some real challenges. And so we've been able to do more at home than we thought was even possible just six, seven, eight, nine months ago. Mm -hmm. <coughs> One of the other things that we've done, too, is, you know, we examined very carefully same-day procedures. And so we found ways where we're able to now across the country and certainly now at UH and other places here in town, we can do same day joint replacements on a same day basis. So you come in in the morning, you have a total knee, you have a total hip, uh, you're ready to go home, you get discharged to home safely. We provide in-house home care services and it's been an enormous change. So I think the shift from inpatient to outpatient is going to continue. I think uh, value instead of volume will continue on into the future. And I think technologic enablement is going to be something that's certainly here to stay. It's interesting the way you, you talk about it. I'm sort of reminded that of like visions of house calls from decades gone by. And like, you know, we became such a hospital centric set of systems that um, sort of forgot about the importance and the and on the well-being of people if we can keep them in their homes. So if you look at any of the OECD countries, you would see that we spend almost 2x what Switzerland spends, for example. Um, but if you look at any of the industrialized countries, you would find that the center of their healthcare universe is not hospital-centric. Mm -hmm. The United States is the only developed economy where hospitals for years have been the center of that healthcare universe. And I didn't say it in my opening remarks, but that's why I think having access to primary care having access to wellness, taking personal responsibility, making sure their care is coordinated by a professional who knows how to navigate the system. Then I think that's where healthcare needs to go because we cannot have access to multiple points along the system without having an opportunity for us to go through the portal of a primary care practitioner, be that a 
physician, a nurse practitioner, physician's assistant. And we need to become more of a primary care focused environment so that we'll monitor people's ability to pay for and take their prescription drugs, have access to an annual wellness exam, understand whether or not people have food security, insecurity at their home. Do they feel safe at home? All the things that really matter because we're still the kind of healthcare delivery system that is very expensive because so much of what we do is hospital-based as opposed to primary care-based. And I would hope, as I already said, under the new administration, that that focus on access will be paramount in terms of what a new plan will look like. Are the economics still, uh, like if you're thinking about getting into healthcare as a physician, um, are, do the economics still drive people towards specialties rather than primary care? Yeah, in, in a multitude of ways, that's that's true. So, uh, for example, if, if you're a member of a Medicare Advantage plan, for example, mm -hmm. you generally have a primary care practitioner who will help you to navigate the system. Mm -hmm. You may go direct to a specialist if you have something that will require mm -hmm. some longitudinal care or some chronic care management. Mm -hmm. But that's with the approval of your primary care provider and the specialist. If you look at our accountable care organization, we have patient navigators who help take people through the system in the most appropriate way. Mm -hmm. So there are still portals in which people can access specialist positions, but uh, people by many measures are willing to pay for that privilege. And if so, that's fine, but not everyone has the opportunity to be able to afford to pay for that privilege. But I was just thinking actually about people who wanna enter the medical field as professionals, that the incentives are seem to still push people towards specializing rather than being primary care physicians. They, they do. In fact, um, if you take a look at the most sought after professions today in medicine, they are things like um, the interventional services. So anything surgically oriented, of course, mm -hmm. uh, pays the greatest amount. Uh, most sought after uh, opportunities now are actually in places like emergency medicine mm -hmm. and in places like uh, dermatology, for example, in places uh, like anesthesiology, because of one thing, predictable hours. And so, as you mentioned, you know, the days of physicians going to visit uh, in a home health visit uh, are, are basically few and fewer and far between. But at the same time, we don't need physicians to do that. We can do it with others. And so the least sought after professions today, uh, the residencies that uh, really don't get filled quite so quickly are in family medicine internal medicine, OBGYN, and pediatrics. And the reason for that is because your hours are very unpredictable. If you're on call, your phone rings all the time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, at the same time, while that's true, there are more people looking to become physicians than ever before. The number of medical school applicants has increased every year and is at its highest point right now. So people want to get into the medicine for the right reasons, and people want to go into primary care specialties. But if you're a medical student coming out of medical school and you've got a $250,000 to $500,000 debt and you want to go into primary care where you can find a job perhaps making $225,000 dollars $230,000 a year or go into a specialty where you're going to make five hundred and sixty dollars to $700,000 a year out of residency, when you take a look at the economics, many times it will change the way that people perceive the field in which they want to go into. Yeah. Well, and you're right about the primary care physicians. I will say that our uh, our own children are the pedi the pediatricians that we rely on, and in, in Team Malthrop are UH physicians, and um, and they call us back even on the weekends. 
and they're they're phenomenal. We're going to move to questions from the audience in a moment. If you have a question for Tom, please text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it in. And as we as, as you do, I'm going to, Tom, I want you to talk a little bit about what's next. For me, you mean? For you, personally, professionally. Yeah, well. You're retiring. You know, I back about this, Dan, and it's, it's hard to believe, but uh, I graduated from graduate school in, in 1980, so that's 40 years ago. But I've been involved in hospital administration since I was 16 years old. So, uh, you know, I've been at this for almost 50 years, hard to believe. Uh I love what I do. I love university hospitals. This is a fantastic organization and a wonderful city. Um, I'm going to be going into a, a little different arena now. So my 2.0 is uh, going to be in the area of uh, private equity and venture capital. So I still, I'm remaining in healthcare. I mean, I, I don't want to be a poseur. So, you know, I don't know anything about manufacturing or commerce or banking. So uh, the interests uh, that have been expressed that I've been responsive to are predominantly in healthcare. I'm going to move into an environment which is still going to be healthcare, but it's going to be more consumer and customer facing venture capital, because I'll get to see a lot of interesting deal propositions that um, are early stage. As you know, VC is predominantly pre-revenue or early revenue stage and private equity is a little further developed than that. So I want to remain in the field because I love what I do. I don't want to venture too far from it. Um, and so I'm excited about these new opportunities and, uh, I should have everything completed uh, probably by the end of this month, I would assume, in terms of what I'm going to be doing next. Uh, I'll be a, a general partner in the PE world, but I'm going to be a, a strategic advisor, as it's being called, to a couple of private equity firms. I'm sorry, a few uh, venture capital firms on the on the West Coast. Congratulations. That's a, Thank you. That, sounds, that sounds engaging and interesting. And I'm sure anybody with an idea for a new medical device or app is probably going to hit you up pretty soon. Um, so let's get to some questions. Uh, the first one that came in, how, how will specialized medical practices be affected by the coronavirus in the long term? Will there be any permanent changes made to the way that medical facilities or practitioners currently operate due to the virus? In tertiary and quaternary care, probably not. Um, COVID is not necessarily going to be impacting what happens in a level one trauma center, for example. It's not going to have a dramatic impact on solid organ transplantation, as another example. But every specialty now is going to be looking for ways to be responsive to what we talked about already, Dan, and that is how we will be paid for those services and how those services will be accessed. I think the biggest change is going to be in the primary care, not in the specialty or uh, tertiary care specialty uh, services. I think how we're practicing primary care is going to really change. So we saw a big uptick in um, virtual visits. Now that's come down a little bit. It will probably come down a little bit more. But I think physicians' offices are going to have to be geared up now for people who have a real interest in uh, getting a virtual visit as opposed to having to go to a doctor's office. I think doctors are going to have to realign how they're thinking about how they're going to be responsive to uh, the patients that they care for. As you might well imagine, I have a high regard for all physicians and all of our caregivers. Uh, primary care physicians especially, though, are going to be, I think, um, having to really examine how their offices are staffed, their hours of operation, who's going to be covering call for them, how they're going to be interacting with patients. Because remember, nothing can replace physician laying on the hands, as the profession says. So we may be able to do things in such a way that we could do a lot remotely or virtually, but there are still going to have to be visits to the doctor's office so that they can look into your eyes 
they can ask you the right questions. They can uh, do the things that they need to do in a physical exam to make sure that everything is being covered. I don't think it's going to change the number of people who have an interest in specialty care, but what we've seen is the emergence of a number of virtual uh, visit companies like Teladoc, for example, I think is the largest, right? So um, people want to have virtual visits and primary care physicians want to have predictable hours. So we may see now a truing up of people who want to go into primary care specialties because their hours are more predictable if they work in a teletype environment. So um, we're going to have to see this through. But remember, we have a long way to go before this COVID issue is over. And so I think we're going to see some modifications and changes along the way. But at the end of the day, I think everyone's going to have to re-examine everything that we're doing, including hospitals, physicians, and other care providers as well. Another question for you, Tom. Uh, given the extreme health disparities among the African-American population, and given what you've seen in your medical administration career, what role do you think health systems like UH have in nurturing and grooming African-Americans to pursue and thrive in medicine as a profession? You know, Dan, it, it's absolutely imperative that we take an active role uh, in training and mentoring, but we have to go a little bit further upstream. And I don't know the exact numbers now through uh, the AAMC, but uh, the Association of American Medical Colleges. But I still think that the enrollment levels of people of color in medical school is below 10%. I think the number of Latino physicians in training is under 6%. We have to increase that pipeline because until we do, we know that there will continue to be some degree of disparity because study after study has shown in every publication that people of color, people who want to seek care are going to seek care from people who look like they do. And if we don't have that pipeline established, we can do mentoring, we can do training, we can do everything that we wanna do. But until we have a broader pipeline of people who are going to be able to invite into our training programs, it's going to be a little bit more challenging. So we need to work, UH and, and other hospitals, we need to work earlier on. We need to work with STEM schools. We need to get people interested in careers in medicine and make an active, honest effort to make certain that it's not a box checking exercise, but that we get more people into the queue, including nursing schools, by the way, and all the clinical areas to make sure that diversity is gonna be an important part of what we're gonna to do to attract and retain people in this field. Tom, the health disparities in the, and our understanding, there's another question um, that, that comes in, but I'm gonna expand on it. The question is, racial inequities have consequences for healthcare. How is UH addressing these challenges? But I mean, over the course of the last 20 years, our community in particular has, has become intimately familiar with the, the huge gulfs in health outcomes between African-Americans who live in the Huff neighborhood, say, and, the, and their white counterparts in Lyndhurst, where life expectancy, there could be a 20-year gap in life expectancy between those, you know, an average life expectancy between those two regions. And, um, and you go on down the list with all sorts of other kind of adverse health outcomes, as well as kind of the uh, adverse childhood experiences and adverse childhood environments that, that we've we've grown to learn more about. Um, that's one of the, probably, I guess, one of the largest changes or the largest kind of shifts in context and, and in the way people talk about healthcare and healthcare delivery. You know, I can give you a couple of examples and please don't misunderstand me. I'm gonna give you two examples, not for aggrandizement, but instead 
uh, as examples of what we need to do a better job at. So for example, at UH, uh, we spend about $400 million a year on community benefit activities, defined in any number of ways according to a common definition determined by the IRS and the American Hospital Association. But I'm, give, I'm going to give you two examples. So to your point, Dan, we have to think about violence. We have to think about education. We have to think about nutrition. So we opened up the Rainbow Center down on 58th and 59th between Chester and Euclid about two years ago. Mm -hmm. We did that because when Patty DePompey, who's the president of Rainbow Babies and Children's, took a look at the numbers, she, she began to ask herself the question, why is our neonatal intensive care unit so full all the time? That means high-risk deliveries, high-risk babies, and babies born preterm or uh, with issues that require them to be in an intensive care unit. We come to find out that, you know, less than two miles away from us in the area that you described, uh, there was no primary care. There was no availability for uh, well baby care. There was no prenatal care. There was nothing available. So we built this rainbow center that we opened, uh, I think it'll be two and a half years ago now. We went from seeing some people who would be able to make their way to us and Patty was able to do everything by working with her team to reroute bus lines, to make it accessible for people to be able to get through public transportation to this new center. And I hope you know where it is and yeah. I hope those listening know where it is. But if you haven't, you should you should take a drive by or if you like, we'd be happy to give you a tour. I believe this year uh, we're going to take care of over 100,000 visits in that facility. So not zero, but close to it to 100,000 visits a year. But in that facility, we also have the Legal Aid Society that we provide free space to because many people are worried about home security and are they going to be evicted from their apartments? Are there issues that they have to face? So uh, there's that non-clinical setup there. We opened up a huge dental clinic there because we found that in some of the cases in our emergency departments, it's a high number. Estimates are that as many as 40% of children who came to the ED came because of uh, oral health problems. And then we come to find out that it was a food desert. And so if you've been by the site, you'll notice that there's a Dave supermarket there, 50,000 square foot supermarket with a test demonstration kitchen so that we actually have to teach people how to shop from the neighborhood because they would come to us and we would ask them about food insecurity. They'd never been to a grocery store. They got their nutrition from fast food, convenience stores, and gas stations. So, um, and Dave's supermarket appears to be doing quite well. We did not build that facility. We talked to a local developer and said, look, we're gonna build this anchor institution here. Would you be willing to build uh, an opportunity for a food market, a supermarket to move into the area? So that's why you see that all developed on one site. We had responsibility for the clinical, but provided non-clinical services. And thank goodness a developer and Dave's supermarket was willing to, to move in and tremendous changes in that regard. And then the other one I'll give you an example of is, um, at the Olivet Baptist Church. We just renovated the Otis Moss Center, but the lower level in the Otis Moss Center is preparing people to be trained for jobs who live in that immediate region. Yes, we upgraded the medical care that we're providing there, but we also worked with the Cleveland Food Bank because food insecurity is critically important. And so by focusing our energies and our efforts on working with the Cleveland Food Bank, people can now access the food pantry and take nutritious food that they can take back to their families and we have hundreds of people who are availing themselves in that service. So yes, we spend $400 million a year, but that needs to probably be a little bit more focused on the things that you described than just a portion of the answer that I gave you. We need to do far more than we're doing now. 
this whole idea of focusing on things that are not healthcare related, but that have healthcare outcomes have to be part of our narrative on a going forward basis. Question here about uh, the coronavirus vaccine. And I'm not surprised that it's on everybody's mind. Um, assuming a vaccine is available in the near future, how will UH in collaboration with the clinic and Metro distribute the vaccine and also encourage people to get vaccinated despite some people's antipathy to vaccines and others who may see the vaccine as somehow political? Yeah, so let's, let's take those in reverse order. Um, the estimates are 50% of the population today are going to be unwilling to take the vaccine. To get herd immunity, the experts tell us, like Dr. Salata, for example, or Dr. Simon, tell us we need to be 60, maybe 70% vaccinated. I'm hoping that with a new platform from the president and vice president-elect, you know, they just formed a COVID task force. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to change the opinions of those who are feeling that this is a politically driven matter about getting a vaccination and turn it into a public health issue as opposed to a political issue may go a long way toward changing people's minds about becoming vaccinated. That's point number one. Point number two, uh, the Pfizer vaccine is a two dose vaccine. So it's, it's uh, you get the vaccine 21 days later, you get your second vaccine. There are 26 others that are being developed around the world right now, many of which are one dose vaccines. So just last week, through the efforts of uh, Heidi Gartland, we had uh, Eric Hargan, who's uh, with, with uh, he's an undersecretary at, at Health and Human Services, and we had uh, Surgeon General Adams here, and we were talking about that very point. And I would hope that we could even use Cleveland as a demonstration center for how best to distribute the vaccines. It's going to be a little while. We have a little bit of time to think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Mihalovic was invited to be part of this conversation, and we volunteered that if we could work with uh, the Health and Human Services, the CDC and other government agencies, we'd love to have an opportunity to be able to prioritize according to C CDC guidelines, how those vaccines will be developed, mm -hmm. transported, administered here in Cleveland in a most appropriate way that can be replicated across the rest of the country. There is no answer right now, but there are a number of people in Washington working on this right now, and we're happy to be around that table having that very conversation. The Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are both uh, really based on relatively new technology. Uh, first time we're seeing vaccines for humans developed with mRNA uh, tech. Um, is, should that be a concern for anybody, or is it is it a concern for you? What do you what do you think about that? It's not like the traditional kind of flu virus where they use a, a, an attenuated form of the of the virus. Yeah, you know, Dan, as a non-clinician, I'm I'm not qualified really to answer the question. But for but for me, but I'm sure you have an opinion anyway, Tom. Come on. No, yeah, no, really. For me personally, um, I have trust in the FDA. I have trust in the healthcare delivery system where we're doing double-blind studies to see which of these vaccines work and which don't. Mm -hmm. And so I have trust that the process that we're using and it has been accelerated. Make no mistake about it. That when a vaccine uh, that has been determined to be safe and when I'm eligible to receive the vaccine, I will certainly put up my hand and I'll be happy to receive it, provided that I fit into the context in which, uh, you know, the priorities have been determined. Again, if you have a question for Tom Zenti, the outgoing CEO uh, of University Hospitals, text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club. We'll work it in. Um, Tom, what's your overall opinion of the Affordable Care Act? It's probably been the the one piece of legislation that's had a greater impact on your life, your profession, and your professional career than any other. 
Yeah, and, and you know, Dave, for a lot of reasons, that's the case. Um, it's not just what you would think, but one of the reasons why we got involved in an accountable care organization model back now almost 11 years ago is because under the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, it became an option. And we decided we don't know exactly how ACOs are going to work. Uh, no one did because it was a new and a relatively novel concept. But that's what caused us to decide to form our own ACO. And as I said, I don't know the exact number, but the estimates are that we're the fifth largest provider sponsored plan in the country. We know we've made a difference in this regard. Uh, the individual mandate, uh, difficult for a lot of people to accept, but uh, I think having the ability for people to access healthcare in the most appropriate and most affordable way is critically important. So I know that it was struck down for tax reasons. And as you mentioned in the opening comments, they're hearing this at the Supreme Court right now. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And now with President-elect Biden in office, obviously he was an integral part of the PPACA. And I know he's going to find ways to try to accomplish what it was they accomplished in passing the ACA, regardless of the individual mandate component. Um, when we take a look at the Medicare Advantage plans and what we can expect to see there, one of the things that uh, uh, President-elect Biden has talked about is uh, perhaps making Medicare available to people who are under the age of 65, uh, maybe from the age of uh, 55 to 60 plus to be eligible to participate in the Medicare program. So I think we're going to see a lot of things that we're going to be contemplating. I think we learned a lot from the PPACA and some of it worked and some of it hasn't. Uh, but at the end of the day, yes, there is no doubt that it had a profound impact on our field and on our profession. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of good things have come about as a result of it. So we're looking forward to, again, being on the leading edge of things that will be forthcoming, and we want to be part of that narrative. And so we'll be watching with interest, because when you think about it, uh, many of the people on this uh, Zoom call may not know this, but about 46% of our revenues come from the federal government, and almost 20%, maybe right around 20% of our revenues come from the state government, Medicare and Medicaid. So almost two-thirds of our revenues come from federal and state sources. So as a result, what happens in Washington and Columbus has a profound impact on us. I would think that from a, you know, overall, you know, if you pull back that having more people insured, whether it's through the Medicaid expansion or through the individual mandate, is just makes your business a little bit easier. You have fewer uninsured people coming through the doors needing charity care. That's very true. Um, and, and there's no doubt it has had an impact. Um, however, uh, and, and I can say this without divulging anything that I shouldn't be divulging, but um, we lose money on the Medicare and the Medicaid program, even though there is coverage in the patients that we care for. Mm -hmm. So we saw a drop in the uninsured for sure. Uh, but the amount of money that you know we get paid for, uh, yes, it's, it's been, uh, been a help and it's been a benefit. Uh, but the payment rates for care are so incredibly low now under those federal programs and state programs that I don't know if the future is going to hold, Dan, because quite frankly, you know, you take a look at, um, for example, when uh, President Obama took office in 2008, he had a $420 million deficit uh, at the federal level. That number is $3.1 trillion now. You mm -hmm. take a look at what's happened as a result of COVID to state budgets. Mm -hmm. uh, state budgets are in turmoil as well. So I think we're going to see a, a degradation in how much we're going to be paid under Medicare and Medicaid, quite frankly, because by de facto financial analysis, we almost have to see a, a degradation in how much we're being paid for those services. 
And that's, I suppose, why private insurers are charged so much more. Ultimately, though, that is, is that sustainable the way it happens now? I mean, is that one of the big changes that's going to have to happen in the next 20 years when you won't be leading a hospital that like they're going to have to figure out how how hospitals get paid for this work? I think that's right, Dan. If, you, if you're to take a look at there's the Medicare uh, part A and Medicare Part B components, and Medicare Part A has a trust fund associated with it, as does Part B. You look at the Medicare trust fund, and from a financial review, if we were actuaries, the estimates are that the Medicare trust fund for Part A, which is the hospital component, uh, will probably be insolvent by 2024, 25, or 2026. Before we know it, that's right around the corner. So there is going to have to be some adjustment when we take a look at the financial viability of the Medicare and the Medicaid programs. Mm -hmm. What do you think the next normal will look like after the pandemic subsides? And and how is the hospital system and the healthcare system preparing for whatever comes next? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, I think we can address that in two levels. One is clinical and the other is non-clinical. We're as impacted on the non-clinical side as any other business. Uh, we have Right now, about 4,000 people who are university hospital caregivers who are working from home. Mm -hmm. And the question is, will that trend continue? I can't say that from our perspective, uh, it, it will. But at the moment, we don't see any reason to change it. So imagine if you've got 4,000 people now working from home. What does that say about the need for commercial office space? So we have two offices in Shaker Heights. One is off of Harvard Road. The other is off of uh, Warrensville Center Road. Um, I can assure you that I, I go to that office every day. One of my offices is at Warrensville Center Road. Mm -hmm. And I can assure you that when I walk through the building, um, clearly there are a vast number of people from that facility working from home. So do we need the same amount of office space? Mm -hmm. I doubt it. As a nation, do we need the same amount of office space that we have today? I doubt that too. Clinically, as I said before, I think more digital, more electronic, more virtual I think we're going to see that happening. More outpatient, we're going to see that happening. More home health, we're going to see that happening. And that's why I've been now for the third time mentioning the importance of accessing a health system through the most appropriate way. Because we have so many ways now that we can take care of people safely at home, as opposed to being admitted to the hospital, that we are focusing that, it may sound odd, but we're focusing on that as a key component of what we're doing, not only to keep people well, but to focus on keeping them out of a hospital and in the most cost-effective and clinically appropriate environment. But hospitals these days have to have to operate on such uh, with such sort of a thin margins in terms of capacity, right? Like you're trying to stay at like 90% of your bed capacity at all times, right? Which is if you're keeping more people out of the hospital, maybe you need fewer beds. And then if there's ever another pandemic, I mean, you've learned how to, how to go from, yeah. you know, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 beds up to 5,100 beds. So I guess that's that's one of the enduring lessons. But still, it does it presents some real challenges. It does present some real challenges. But again, um, you know, there was an old rule in hospital administration called Romer's Law that said a bed built is a bed filled. Um, those days are long gone. That is not the case. So, for example, if you were to look at a Hoosier, the Hoosier Medical Center, that building was designed for three patient towers. Uh, what I can tell you in the audience is that 11 years ago when we were designing that hospital, we had a lot of important debates about whether we should build one tower, two towers, or three towers. 
So if you've had a chance to go by the Hoosier Medical Center, you'll see that there's a lot of earth moving equipment on the site. Uh, we built one tower and now we're about to embark on a $236 million building program there. We're gonna have only one inpatient service and that's maternity and OB services. Everything else in that building is going to be ambulatory, other outpatient, observation, emergency department, sports medicine, but only the only addition of beds are gonna be for maternity. We're gonna build a world-class maternity service there. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, we decided to build one tower because we wanted to be conservative. Had we built two towers, Dan, or three, we would be looking at an adaptive reuse of 288 beds because we really only need one tower there. Hmm. So the good news is, as I said earlier, you know, when we examine our strategic plan every single year or sometimes every six months, we always recalibrate it to see what was happening technically, what was happening from a payment standpoint, what was happening from a clinical standpoint. So that's just but one example of how we don't have to worry now about finding an adaptive reuse because we overbedded our facility. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very common for us to open and close units depending on the demand within an organization. And so we've learned to manage to, to the need that we see. So post COVID, gonna be hard to tell. Uh, to your point, just a, a quick analysis before COVID, the estimates are that about a third of hospitals across the country were losing money from operations with COVID and even with uh, the CARES Act funding, the estimates are this year about 60% of hospitals are going to lose money on operations. And next year, it's anticipated the majority of hospitals are planning for 90% of the volumes on an inpatient basis that we saw in 2019. So there's definitely been a damping effect on inpatient activity across our entire nation. One of the long-term questions facing health systems involves staffing shortages. We've spoken a little bit about that, specifically doctors. Looking forward, do you have an opinion on the increasing role that nurse practitioners play in making healthcare decisions to fill the void that exists some, in some cases when there's a shortage of doctors? I, I do. Um, so to put a frame around your question, there are about 990,000 licensed physicians now in the United States. No one knows how many in active clinical practice, but uh, the estimates are that um, in the next five to seven years, we're gonna have about 100,000 fewer physicians than we need when you look at the aging population of the baby boomer generation uh, now hitting right at its prime. Um, the estimates are that there are three, maybe three and a half million nurses that are practicing today. The estimates are in the next five to seven years, there are gonna be about a million nurses retiring. So think about the impact of what that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. So to your question, uh, nurse practitioners right now, advanced practice practitioners, they play such an important role today, and it's gonna be an even more important role tomorrow and in the years to come. Uh, it used to be that there was not a lot of um, recognition of what nurse practitioners could do by the medical community. They are now valued partners working shoulder to shoulder with physicians and nurses on the units, for example, because I think we're going to expect to see that more and more primary care is going to be provided by nurse practitioners or physicians assistants than we're going to see physicians or MDs or DOs on a going forward basis. What does that mean? Number of nursing students has to increase. We've worked with Cleveland State University to increase the pipeline of nursing students now, which we think is going to be critically important. We're doing everything that we can to attract, recruit, and retain uh, nurses who support our mission, vision, and values. Same is true for the physician community as well. So yes, we're seeing, again, if you believe the demographics is destiny, 
Let's start with our population. Let's look at the fastest growing segment now being the baby boomer population, moving into the peak period in which they're gonna need more care. At the very same time, that we're gonna see a degradation in the number of physicians and nurses across the frame. Tom, uh, one of the sort of characteristics of your leadership has been a, a willingness to, to kind of share share credit. And you've said repeatedly, there's no sort of first person singular. Um, but there is another person, another single person who's going to be sitting in your chair in a couple of months, Dr. Cliff Majerian. And I want to wonder if you could, I know you were involved in, in, you said this process, this transition process began about five years ago um, at the board level and the institutional level. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about your successor. Sure. Um, so I had a 10-year contract that expires uh, February 1st of next year. And about six years ago, the board uh, began talking in earnest about succession planning and uh, preparation of leaders across our entire health system. So we began by creating a number of leadership institutes uh, where we selected 40 people, roughly 35 people to go through these leadership institutes. Uh, we've done a lot in terms of management training, leadership education, leadership training, uh, giving people experience and exposure to do multiple things. And the one thing, Dan, that, that I think we are most proud of or that I feel the best about, not to use the first person singular, but um, back when I first arrived, we were promoting, the, the records are a little spotty, but we were promoting somewhere around 15% of people into management were coming from within the organization. De facto, 85% were coming from outside the organization. If you're going to be a mission, vision, and values-driven organization, you have to make sure that you're going to perpetuate that by having people in leadership who both support and demonstrate the commitment to your mission, vision, and values. And now I'm very pleased to say, I, I talked to Tom Snowberger, our chief human resource officer last week. And I said, Tom, where are we now in terms of promotions from within? And I, I'm proud to say that now 80%, 80% of people now moving into management positions at university hospitals are coming from within the organization. Our first leadership institute included Dr. McGarrian, Dr. Simon, who is the president of Cleveland Medical Center, mm -hmm. Patty D. Pompey, who runs Rabel Babies and Children's Hospital, Harlan Edelman, who runs our uh, chief uh, legal officer office here uh, at UH. So, you know, we, we think we picked wisely. Uh, Cliff has been an extraordinary physician during the course of his career. Um, when uh, Cliff was selected to be someone who was going to be considered to potentially be a successor, um, he got exposed to being on the board of the American Hospital Association, Re Association Regional Policy Board, got exposed to more donor activity than he'd been involved with in the past, participated in my senior leadership team, uh, took a broader platform of responsibility for running our physician organization. So I had exposure to the community, had exposure internally, and had exposure to national uh, activities through the American Hospital Association. Cliff's a very accomplished physician. Uh, he's a terrific guy. I think uh, the board made a wise choice. We had uh, a lot of very stiff competition. And as you know, you can only select one CEO. And uh, I'm very pleased that it's Cliff. He's been here since he began his training back in the 80s. So he has uh, 30 years of experience here and I'm doing everything that I can. As, uh, as I said to him, I will do everything I can to create a clear runway so that when he takes over, he will be ready to take off and do what he needs to do as the leader of this organization. A lot of support internally, a lot of support externally, and he certainly has my continued support. Wonderful. Well, thank you. That's a very I compliment you and the board on a very thoughtful uh, succession planning process. I don't know that many organizations or have the foresight 
to, you know, to, to sort of set up their own pipeline in that way. Um, but Tom, thank you for your two decades of leadership. Thank you for spending a little time with us here today. Um, and congratulations. Uh, you've, you've, you've earned the opportunity to, to put your feet up a little bit, to rest a little bit, to enjoy the sunshine, but we'll look forward to seeing you around town as well. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Yeah, I'm, I'm going right back into it. You know, as I like to say, I, I never get to a finish line. I just get to a new starting line. So come January 1, uh, I'm going to be back at it just in a different frame. But you do great work, Dan. I admire you greatly for your interviewing skills and your commitment. Uh, Cleveland has been great to me. I couldn't be prouder to have been associated with UH for 20 years, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here on your program. Congratulations. And and if we were here, if we were in person, Tom, there'd be a huge round of applause for you right now. But I hope you'll accept my congratulations. I do. Thanks thank so much you. for joining us. And thank you as well for joining us for our forum today featuring Tom Zenti, the outgoing CEO of University Hospitals. Our forum today is the annual Richard W. and Patricia R. Pogue Endowed Forum made possible by a generous endowment gift from Dick and Pat Pogue. Thank you so much, Dick. I know that you're watching right now. Today's forum is part of our healthcare innovation series sponsored by Medical Mutual and part of our local heroes series sponsored by Citizens Bank and Dominion Energy. We appreciate their support of City Club programming. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gunn Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District and PNC and many more generous member sponsors and donors that you can see listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy. Please wash your hands and keep your distance and keep wearing that mask and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is now adjourned.